Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing Strange But True, The Life and Adventures of Captain Thomas Crapo and His Wife, published in New Bedford in 1893, and we're on part four. Part four, chapter two, as a man of warsman and soldier. After having been from home so long, I did not feel at all contented with the slow humdrum life around home, so my stay was short, especially as the war had begun and everything was excitement everywhere. So after remaining at home only a few days, the weather being very cold as it was now December, I enlisted in Uncle Sam's Navy and was at once ordered on board the receiving ship Ohio at the Charleston Navy Yard near Boston, and then donned the uniform of the Man of Warsman. I remained on board of her for a period of two weeks when I was transferred to the receiving ship Princeton at Philadelphia. About 300 others were transferred at the same time. We went from Charleston to Philadelphia on the steamship Kensington and were four days on the passage. The weather was very cold and it snowed most of the time, but we had a very jolly crowd on board and plenty of singing and storytelling, so we did not heed the weather. January the 18th, I was again transferred to the flagship Hartford, she being the flagship of Admiral, at that time Commodore, Farragut, one of our most brave and noted commanders in the Union Army or Navy. On the 20th of the same month, we steamed down to the powder station and took on powder and shell. As soon as we finished loading, we started for Hampton Roads, at the entrance of the Chesapeake Bay in Virginia. From there, we went to Hilton Head in South Carolina, Havana, Cuba, Key West, Florida, Ship Island, and from there to the mouth of the Mississippi River. After the arrival of the fleet of vessels under Commodore Farragut, we started up the Mississippi, the Hartford taking the lead. Our intentions were to make an attack on Forts Jackson and St. Phillips. On arriving within a suitable distance, we began firing, and kept up the attack for six days and nights without cessation, the whole fleet throwing about 2,800 shells every 24 hours, or a total of 16,800 during the time. Such a sight and noise I never saw nor heard before, and I hope I shall never see nor hear it again. Shells were bursting everywhere, and the nights were nearly as light as day, with the quick succession of flashes from the cannon's mouths, and the thick smoke rolled away in clouds. It was a magnificent display of fire, but the danger coupled with it left no chance for anyone to stop to admire it, as death and destruction were in the air, and none of us knew when a stray shot or shell would take us from this vale of tears and launch us into eternity. We, on the Hartford, were in such a position as to be unable to use any of our guns except our large Dahlgreen, or bow gun, as it was called as none of the others could be used with any effect, yet our broadside guns were loaded and manned ready to fire as an opportunity offered. About two o'clock in the morning of the 24th of April, we were ordered to get under way to pass the forts, we were all ordered to lie down flat on deck out of sight of the enemy and at the command to rise and fire and to load and fire as often as possible until told to stop. At the command to fire, it was meant for our whole broadside to blaze away. When the broadsides of the fleet rang out on the air, it was enough to fairly burst the drums in a person's ears. The flash, flash from the muzzles of the guns were almost enough to blind or dazzle one's eyes and the continuous bursting of shells and the whistle and swish swish of the chain shot, fired to cut our rigging and hulls to pieces, gave none of us a chance to stop to think or collect our thoughts. Everything was bustle and commotion, 
and everybody acted as though they thought everything at that time depended on them. The sight was indeed appalling, and any of the persons that took part in it will surely remember it to their dying day. Oft times, as my mind reverts to it, I seem to almost see and hear it over again. During the attack, the rebels were launching large fire rafts from different points, and would start them so they would be pretty sure to run into the fleet, attacking the forts. Several of the fleet got on fire from them, but the flames were soon extinguished. One of them was drifting direct towards us, and we tried hard to clear it. Our helm was put hard a port to try and run clear from it, and by doing so, we struck on a shoal and immediately came to a standstill, which put us in a bad way as the raft lay on our port side and threatened to destroy us by setting our vessel on fire. We fired a whole broadside at it to try and sink it if possible, but could not do so. Our rigging was on fire at this time, as the fire raft lay close to us and hugged the side of our vessel with a determination to stay until we were destroyed. But we were not so easily destroyed. We fought the flames with a desperate will to outdo the rebels, but it was hot work, yet we held it to the last, and at last succeeded. The Commodore paced the poop deck as unconcerned as though nothing had happened, but would occasionally cast a glance up at the flames which had started up our rigging. He seemed as cool and collected as though he was taking a stroll on a beautiful May morning and showed himself to be the brave commander he really was. We at last succeeded in backing the vessel off and the fire raft was set adrift. Our loss during the attack on the forts was three killed and ten wounded, with 32 shots in our hull and rigging. We continued on to quarantine to bury our dead, we then steamed up the river towards New Orleans. When about eight miles below, the Chalmette batteries opened fire upon us, and we could only return the fire with our bow gun. We lost one man. The river was full of fire rafts, but we ran clear of them all, and ran in and anchored off abreast of New Orleans, where we remained until the arrival of General Butler's command. The city was in an uproar on our arrival, and the wharves were thronged with people. Two officers were dispatched on shore to demand of the mayor the surrender of the city. They went on their perilous expedition without an escort, and as they arrived in their boat alongside of the pier, they found that they would have to fairly squeeze their way through the crowd collected there. Nothing daunted, however, they clambered upon the wharf, and on glancing right and left saw that all the slum and dissipated men and women, as well as all the well-to-do, were gathered there, plainly showing by their looks and actions their hatred for the Yankees. As soon as the crowd saw them step on shore, they hooted and hissed like maniacs, and such a discord of voices as was heard was enough to make a brave man quail. As the officers stepped on the shore, they demanded of the crowd to know where the mayor lived or could be found. At this the crowd broke out afresh saying, down with the Yankees, shoot them, hang them to a lamp post, and so on. But no one offered the required information and they proceeded in elbowing their way through the infuriated mob of human beings. We could see them from the vessel and saw that they were not molested, but soon they disappeared from view. None of us could tell what their fate might be, but our guns were loaded with grape and canister and manned ready to open fire upon the mob at the first sign of any attempt to disturb them. These two brave officers were Captain Bailey and Lieutenant Perks. It was a daring deed, and we should all be proud to have such brave and loyal heroes on our banner. Why they were not attacked by the frenzied mob, I am unable to say, unless it was the brave, determined manner they stepped ashore with. After a short stay on shore, they were again seen heading towards their boat, 
and as before, had to fairly elbow their way through the mob, but as before, they were not assaulted. After getting into their boat, they soon reached the vessel, and as they stepped on board, they were met by a crew of brave men that knew how to applaud a brave act, and their welcome back was a rousing cheer from the whole fleet. Shortly after their arrival on board, Captain Charles H. Bell, with a guard of marines, was ordered on shore with two boat howitzers. On arriving at the pier, they were met with the same kind of reception as the other officers, but he, with his guards, made direct for the state house. On arriving there, the marines were drawn up into line, with their weapons pointed at the crowd, with orders to fire at the first sign of interference. Captain Bell then ascended to the roof of the building and tore down the rebel flag and hoisted in its place the stars and stripes. The crowd stood spellbound as though frozen to the spot and not a voice was heard for several minutes. Such daring had completely taken their breath away. That was bearding the lion in his den in earnest. And, strange to say, not a shot was fired, which proved beyond a doubt that such daring had completely unmanned them. The captain and his escort then marched to the customs house where the same performance was enacted, the crowd eagerly watching every move but not lifting so much as a finger to stop it. Every man and boy on board the fleet cheered lustily the brave acts of our comrades. It was almost like bearing the breast to a duelist and inviting him to take your life. None of us expected they would return alive, but with the courage of a lion they dared to do or die, and do it they did, and they should not be forgotten. After hoisting the stars and stripes on the custom house, Captain Bell descended to the ground, and with a defiant, never-to-be-forgotten look, ordered the marines to march towards their boat, and they were soon on board, the heroes of the hour. Tears could be seen on many faces, tears of joy to welcome as comrades such daring heroes. Shortly after the fleet started up the river towards Vicksburg, when about eight miles above New Orleans, went ashore on the left bank and spiked 29 guns. We were informed that our fleet had sunk several rebel gunboats in the attack on Fort Jackson and St. Phillips. We continued on as far as Baton Rouge, where we took on coal. While coaling up, some of our officers were fired upon by guerrillas, wounding one of them. We then fired four or five shots into the town. After coaling up, we proceeded to Vicksburg and arrived there June 25th, 1862, and began bombarding the town. Their fortifications were spread all along the hills, about 50 yards apart, and about one and a half miles in from shore, and about 250 feet up from the level, which made it a very strong fortification and was called the Gibraltar of the West, and to have seen it, you would have said it was rightly named. We passed up very slowly, our steam being down to about eight pounds. We stopped several times on that account. We continued to fire until ordered to stop. One of our crew was killed and 18 wounded. We continued on and anchored among Admiral Davy's fleet. While anchored there, with our fires down, the rebel ram Arkansas ran the gauntlet by our fleet, giving us several shots as a parting tribute of her prowess. By not having steam up, we could not pursue her, but we gave her a broadside as she passed, several shots taking effect. We got ready that night to pass the forts, and swung our anchors at the yardarm to drop on and grapple the ram Arkansas, should we be fortunate enough to get near her, but she did not make her appearance. While abreast of Vicksburg, we were fired upon, and a heavy battle was indulged in, Shot and shell were whistling everywhere, and the flashes of the large guns made the night as light as day. The firing was continuous. George H. Lounsbury, master's mate, had his head taken clear from his body, as though cut off with a great razor. 
His body fell to the deck, but his head was never found. Two others were killed and six wounded during the engagement. After passing the Gibraltar, Vicksburg, we continued down the river. Arriving off Grand Gulf, we were fired upon by guerrillas, and after we passed the town, was burned by the fleet. The town of Donaldsonville was also burned. We continued on to New Orleans, where I left the Hartford and took my effects on shore. On arriving on shore, I enlisted in the 1st Louisiana Infantry under General Butler, many of the regiment being those formerly of the garrison in Forts Jackson and St. Phillips in the rebel service. We were mustered into service August 25th, 1862, and went into camp at Camp Kearney to drill and prepare ourselves for battle. From there, we were ordered to Donaldsonville, about 80 miles above. We remained there during the winter of 1862. We built a fort there and mounted eight guns. We also dug a trench around it. We named the fort Fort Butler. While we were there, General Banks was sent to relieve General Butler. General Banks took command of the 19th Army Corps. In the spring of 1863, we formed an expedition to go up the Red River. We marched from Donaldsonville to the Brazier City, where we boarded transports and went across the lake and landed at a place called Irish Bend in Louisiana, where we had a battle, our major being the first one wounded. The fight lasted four or five hours and bullets flew thick and fast during that time. I do not remember how many were killed and wounded, but the number was large. In the afternoon, the rebels retreated. We followed along the river where they had a gunboat named the Cotton, and for fear she would fall into our hands, they set her on fire and blew her up. We kept up towards Alexandria, driving the rebels ahead of us all the way. We marched through the day and went into camp at night, when pickets would be posted and our guns stacked handy to reach in case of necessity. Then we would be off for fence rails to sleep on and make fires with. After supper was over, we would start out foraging for something good for breakfast. One place we came across we saw about 20 cattle in a barnyard, and before daylight every one of them was killed and dressed ready to cook for breakfast. The owner of them was so dumbfounded when he arose in the morning he could hardly speak, but cried like a child. It was hard to see a strong man crying, but we had about 18,000 hungry men to feed, and it took considerable rations to do it. We would take anything we came across, pigs, chickens, ducks, goats, or anything eatable, potatoes, cabbages, turnips, corn, or anything we wanted. The next morning, we again set out, and after marching all day, we camped about sundown. Several of us went to a planter's house, and seeing a flock of geese in the yard, I asked the owner for one, which he indignantly refused, whereupon I shot one of them and picked him up and started off with him. He stood and looked hard at me, but didn't open his mouth. I don't know how many geese he had left in the morning, but I don't believe he had any, for as soon as the boys saw them, they would want and would have them. The last of that night finished up our foraging on that trip, and we reached Alexandria. We remained there about four days and started towards Shrevesport. We had tramped about 12 miles west of Alexandria when we picked up a quantity of cotton which we seized. We then returned over the same route until within a few miles of the Mississippi River when we took transports and went down the Red River about 12 miles. When we reached the Mississippi, went down a short distance and landed. When within about 12 miles of Port Hudson, we dug trenches for a distance of about 8 miles and laid siege to the city. My readers may think it strange that we should march in such a roundabout way, but our object was to draw the troops and forces away from Port Hudson 
so we would have an easier victory over them and take the place from them. We practiced all the tricks we, our commander, could think of to draw their attention from our object, as skillful manoeuvring was better than bloodshed. On the 27th of June, 1863, we made a charge upon Port Hudson, and we found them better fortified than we anticipated. They had cut down all the trees around their stronghold, which made it hard work for us, as we had to climb over the fallen trees, as they had been left just as they fell, and as fast as we undertook to charge upon them, we were repulsed, losing heavily. As fast as any of our boys showed themselves, their sharpshooters would pick them off, and we soon found that in order to keep from being utterly wiped out was to drop behind the fallen trees and lie there out of sight, which we did, as it was no use to throw our lives away, for nothing could be gained by so doing. It must have been a queer sight to them to see us crawling and scrambling over trees and branches and stumps, trying to get near to them. We lay where we dropped until after dark, when we crawled back to our trenches. Our colonel was killed in the engagement, and our total loss was three or four thousand. I was fortunate in not receiving a scratch, yet the boys were falling all around me as the bullets flew like hailstones. It is not a pleasant thing to see your comrades dropping all around you, many of them dead before striking the ground, and none of us knew but our turn would come next. Yet we undauntedly kept up the siege, with more or less shots exchanged until the 8th of July when they surrendered to us. This surrender was to General Banks, the commander of our corps. While we held siege over Port Hudson, the rebels from Texas made an attack upon Fort Butler at Donaldsonville. Upon being informed about it, we boarded transports and went there and landed and marched on Bayou La Flush, four miles below, and went into camp. And the following afternoon, the rebels made an attack upon us at a place called Cox's Plantation. The rebels meant business and intended to rout us. Several of our command were killed and wounded as they pressed us so hard we retreated towards Donaldsonville. The Rebs, thinking we were drawing them into a trap and not caring to be hemmed in, they left for Texas again. They did not know that Port Hudson had surrendered, and as Vicksburg was sieged at the time Port Hudson was taken, was a means of cutting off all chances for supplies. So on account of this they surrendered to us, but they were stubborn and held out as long as they could. After the surrender of Vicksburg, we went into camp, and while we were camped there we made several runs up the Mississippi River on transports, the army going into quarters in several places in Louisiana. We remained near Donaldsonville until the spring of 1864, acting as garrison for Fort Butler. The second Red River campaign was started under General Banks, and we were relieved by a coloured company, so we left for Brazier City to join our troops. We took transports to cross the river and then took up the line of march towards Alexandria. We marched about 12 miles a day and went into camp at night, and each night on the line of march the planters were minus pigs, chickens, ducks and other eatables. The fleet of gunboats were following up the river while we were marching on land. We at last arrived in Alexandria all right, and after a short stay we started again towards Shreveport. About 12 miles from Grandico, at a place called Pleasant Hill, we had a heavy battle and got badly whipped. We lost all of our artillery and ammunition train with provisions besides small arms. A great many were killed and wounded and taken prisoners. Towards night, the firing ceased and we went into camp. In the night, we were reinforced with about 15,000 men under command of Major A.J. Smith of the 13th Army Corps. The next morning, the Rebs made another attack on us. 
They little dreamed what a reception they would receive from us through being reinforced during the night, but they were not long kept in suspense as we whipped them far worse than they did us. We mowed them down like grass upon the farmer's scythe, and they lost no time in retreating, and we were fortunate in recovering everything taken from us during our first engagement with them. After completely routing them, we went back to Grandico. While there, we built a fortification of logs for protection. The water was falling so fast in the river, the gunboats were in danger of running aground, so they retreated down the river towards Alexandria, the Rebs firing at them all the way. We again took up the line of march. The first day we marched 42 miles without a rest. Upon arriving at Alexandria, the water was falling so rapidly the gunboats could not get over the falls, on account of which it was decided to build a dam in order to keep enough water above to allow them to get over the falls. We built the dam, which was a success, but coupled with plenty of hard work. We built the dam in eight days. The falls were about a mile in length and interspersed with jagged rocks, which looked very uninviting for a vessel to try to run through. We ran out and sank four large coal barges at the end of the falls from the right bank of the river. Cribs filled with stone were then run out to meet the barges, all of which was fairly accomplished, notwithstanding there was a current running at the rate of nine miles an hour, threatening to sweep everything before it. At the end of the eighth day, the water had risen so many of the vessels could come down. In another day, it would be high enough to allow all to come down, but, unfortunately, on the next day, the pressure of the water was so great as to sweep away two of the barges of stones. It was a sight to see, and we were where we had a good view of it all, those large gunboats go over those falls. As each one approached to run the gauntlet, you could almost hear a pin drop, but as they passed safely over the falls, cheer upon cheer would ring from a thousand throats at once. There were at that time on the fleet and on the shore about 30,000 Yankee soldiers and sailors, each and every one much interested in the safety of the gunboats, as a great deal depended on them at all times. After the fleet had passed the falls, we all followed down the Red River. The city of Alexandria was set or got on fire in some way, and the flames could be seen very plain for a distance of four or five miles. We marched on down to Achafalea, and in order to cross the river, the transports were drawn into a line alongside of each other, forming a regular pontoon bridge, as we all marched over them and arrived safely on the other side. We marched from there to Maganzi Landing on the Mississippi River. We built a fort there and named it Fort Maganzi. We all camped there about a month. While there, Major General Canby was sent out to take command from Major General Banks. We were ordered from there to New Orleans, and on arriving there, we went into camp. Then, the 19th Army Corps was ordered to go up the Potomac, and we were sent to Fort Butler at Donaldsonville, and stayed there until the close of the war. And at the close, we were ordered down to New Orleans to be mustered out of service. On the 16th of July, 1865, while at Donaldsonville, I was on Provost Guard, and was dispatched to go to New Orleans with rebel prisoners. We went on transports, and, as it was night when we arrived and very dark, the plank that was run out to walk ashore on was not wide enough for me to see, so overboard I went. My gun sank, and away went my cap, and the only way I got out was by following the sound of the voices on shore, but I managed to get on shore and delivered up the prisoners to the provost marshal and returned to the fort. After I was mustered out of service, I stayed in New Orleans about a week and was presented a free pass to New York. While the steamer I was in, bound for New York, was off Key West, the boilers gave out. The fires were drawn and the steam blown off. 
When repairs were made, we again started for New York. Off abreast of Charleston, they gave out again, when sail was set and we again began repairs. While sailing along in the Gulf Stream, we sighted a steamer and we put up our flag of distress. She proved to be the George Washington, the one I was on being the barked rig steamer Blackstone. The George Washington was bound from New Orleans to New York. Our captain asked the other captain to tow us in, but as they were a mail steamer, they could not do so. But he consented to take all the passengers in, so I went on board and soon arrived in New York. From there, I went to my home in New Bedford. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. and We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.